I have one thing to say to you. Kiss my fat ass. Hello, all my fellow mourners of diet culture. It is I, Emily Lubin. I am the Grim Reaper and the host of this show. Welcome to RIP Diets, episode 10. We made it. So originally when I decided to do this podcast, I was like, okay, it's going to be seasonal. And the first season is going to have 10 episodes. We're going to go over the 10 principles of intuitive eating. That was the plan. But now that I've been doing it, I really love doing this podcast so much that I realized I need to recalibrate. I need to fuck with the format a little bit because we have gone through all the principles as of today. But there's so much more to talk about. There's so much more that I want to share with you guys. And I'm starting to build a really amazing community, a small one, but we're getting there. And I really, really love the community that I'm starting to build around this podcast. I love hearing from you guys. Again, uh, if you have not slid into my DMs, fucking slide. I am Lubination, L-U-B-I-N-A-T-I-O-N on Instagram. Slide into my DMs. Tell me what you think of the show. While you're at it, write an iTunes review. The iTunes reviews were rolling in for the first couple weeks and I was sharing them on my Insta story. I felt like such a fucking cool kid um, with all my positive reviews, but we've kind of hit a plateau. I haven't been getting as many reviews, but I've been hearing from you guys. So I know that you like the podcast. So I would urge you to go to the uh, podcast app on your phone or go to iTunes if you have iTunes and write a review. Let the people know what you think of the show because it really truly does help the show. I will say it a million times because I think sometimes you need to hear something a million times for it to really sink in. Write a review. They really help. And also make it your Instagram story. Take a screenshot of you listening to the podcast or go to my Instagram and um, for every episode I make a little audiogram. So it's a little audio clip of something that we talked about on the podcast. And it'll either be a guest picture or an image of something I spoke about with a cool background. I usually do some kind of cool landscape or space background because I fucking love space. And you can share that directly to your Instagram or to your story it, re- it really helps. I've noticed that that's a really great way for people to find the podcast. And if you share it, this is just like a technical thing. If you share it from my Instagram, copy the caption because I have all these uh, hashtags on it. And that is so more people can find the podcast who are interested in anti-diet nutrition, which is having a boom. I am noticing a boom in the awareness that people have about intuitive eating and about health at every size and anti-diet nutrition, which is fantastic. I could not be happier about that, but we need more people on board. We, we definitely, you know, it's a movement, but this movement needs to become a revolution. And that's where you guys come in because I can't do it all on my own. I just can't. I try, but you know, there's only so much that little old me can do. So Consider that your form of payment. 
or a way of giving back to the podcast, supporting the arts, if you will. So today we're going to be talking about principle number 10, which is gentle nutrition. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood principles of intuitive eating. So I can't wait to talk about that. I can't wait to give my take on it. But first, I want to talk about Wendy's and fast food in general. I went on a road trip a couple weeks ago. I went up to Vermont. My best friend, my childhood best friend has a house there or her her family has a house there. And we had a little Rona getaway, if you will. We had a little uh, self-quarantine with a couple friends um, up in Vermont. And it was so nice. It was so remote. And God, the people in Vermont just do not give a fuck about COVID and not in like a, a bad way. I mean, definitely if you go inside somewhere, you have to be wearing a mask. We were wearing masks uh, when we were in close quarters. We wore masks in the car. Uh, my friend also made us wear masks while we were cooking, which I thought was a, a little overkill, but she works in healthcare, So I was like, listen, I don't know everything. I'm going to defer to you if you think that we should be wearing masks while we cook so that we don't get our breath, our saliva, our juices on the food, then so be it. It's a small price to pay for a wonderful weekend away in gorgeous, mountainous, green Vermont. But I was driving up there with my boyfriend and um, my boyfriend had been telling me for a while, you got to try Wendy's because I had never eaten at Wendy's. I've eaten McDonald's. Um, I've tried Burger King Literally once. I tried it on the way up to school. Uh, road trips, by the way, are the perfect time for fast food because you go through the drive through or if you need to stretch your legs, you get out of the car, you go in. In this case, we couldn't because only the drive through was open. I remember when I used to drive up to school, I went to college in upstate New York. Um, I would always stop at this rest stop and it was in, I don't know how to pronounce the town's name, but at the time I pronounced it Schlotzburg. I don't know. It's spelled S-L-O-A-T-S-B-U-R-G, something like that. But I would also say, oh, yo, we need to stop at the Schlotzburg rest stop because it was like this little it looked kind of like a mini mall it had a little parking garage it was like a deluxe rest stop and we used to go in and I would always go to Quiznos and at Quiznos for some reason um, the same four people worked at Quiznos the entire time I went to school and every year I would go and I would talk to them they were all Haitian so I used it as an opportunity to practice my French so I would and I would also kind of flirt with these guys they were they were all extremely hot Haitian men so nice and I would just go up to them and be like mm, je m'appelle Emilie oh ah oui je parle français j'ai appris la langue depuis 10 ans à l'école et uh, au lycée et à l'université et uh, je suis un hot bitch um <laughs> And yeah, I just that that's one memory from college that I would I will always <laughs> look back on and be like, wow, you were just you really put it out there, didn't you? Just flirting in French, getting a Quiznos sub. But that's really like the pinnacle of fast food eating for me is when I'm on a road trip, because otherwise I live in New York City and there's so many other places that I can go to. But I kind of had this eureka moment that I'm going to talk about because 
we drove through Wendy's and um, I got a Wendy's chicken sandwich. And we're sitting in the car. I'm eating the chicken sandwich and fries. I didn't eat too many of the fries because I honestly, they weren't that good. I always heard that Wendy's fries were the best fries, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, don't come at me, but I think McDonald's fries are better. They're, they just are. Um, it could have been that I just got a lame batch, but I don't know. I should have told the Wendy's worker that this was my first experience at Wendy's and maybe they would have tried to impress me a little bit more with the fries. But that was a little bit of a disappointment. But the chicken sandwich was good. It was fucking great. And I'm eating it in the car and I kind of, I said this to my boyfriend, but I kind of had like a eureka moment of how I've heard so many people over the years make the blanket statement that fast food is so unhealthy or fast food is so processed and it's gross. Originally created from old chickens that could no longer lay eggs, McNuggets are now made from chickens with unusually large breasts. They're stripped from the bone and ground up into a sort of chicken mash, which is then combined with all sorts of stabilizers and preservatives, pressed into familiar shapes, breaded, deep fried, freeze dried, and then shipped to a McDonald's near you. Judge Robert Sweet called them a McFrankenstein creation of various elements not utilized by the home cook. And honestly, I used to be one of those people who kind of looked down on fast food and thought, why would anyone even even eat that? Why would anyone subject themselves to the processed garbage that is fast food when they could just go to like a nice place and get a nice burger and and whatever and this is all in quotes right because I actually super don't believe this anymore when I was eating the chicken sandwich from Wendy's I realized this is pretty much exactly like a fried chicken sandwich that I would get at a gastropub in New York City or at a higher end fast food place like Shake Shack, which I also love. And really the only difference that I could tell between the two is that the Wendy's chicken sandwich costs $2. It's a fucking steal. And at a fancy New York City place, A fried chicken sandwich with some fries could run you up to $12, $14, around that price range. Girl, that's expensive. So really, when people talk shit about how fast food is so unhealthy and they put all fast food into this bad category, I think deep down it's really because we think fast food is low class. And when I say low class, I I mean... We think that it's cheap. We think that it's made cheaply and that it's super processed and that, you know, even if you get uh, fried food at a nice restaurant, quote unquote, that that must be higher quality. What I mean is completely writing off fast food and saying, well, I would never eat that is an elitist statement because you can afford to not eat it. If you're saying that, then that means... You have the extra G's to just be shelling out extra money on a higher class chicken sandwich, so to speak. But there's nothing inherently wrong with fast food. It's quick, it's consistent, and it's as nourishing as pub food or beach food. There really is not a whole lot of difference from where I'm standing. Um, And also... A few episodes back, I was talking about how the ideal body type has changed drastically over time and has gotten much slimmer. 
And a listener actually pointed this out to me, um, which is something that I didn't go into that I really want to speak on a little bit, which is that the ideal body type, at least in Western society, has always reflected wealth and status. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. I spoke about Renaissance women being painted typically as pale and curvaceous. And that was largely because to be able to eat a good amount of food and stay inside all day and not get any sunlight on your face, that was a sign of status and wealth. The thin people and tan people of that time were typically peasants who were out in the hot sun working the land. And similarly, nowadays, being super thin is seen as a sign that you can afford lots of, quote, healthy food and fitness classes or a gym membership, which can cost up to thousands of dollars per year. And I know because I belong to the YMCA and even that is a little steep for me. Um, I think it's like $75 a month or something. And it, it, it's, it's not something that everybody can afford. I'm oversimplifying the concept, but just to give you an idea of how this works, just remember that our image of, of what is chic and what is fashionable and what is attractive has a lot to do with wealth and status. I have a friend who has one of these clean eating food accounts, um, and we're not close enough for me to really tell her what I think about it. Um, I'm sure if she follows me or sees anything I do, she would know how I feel about it. But she bakes things with coconut sugar and spirulina and buckwheat and all of these very expensive ingredients that most people simply cannot afford. And then she markets it on her Instagram as clean eating, which perhaps inadvertently sends the message, cheap is dirty and expensive is clean. And th that to me is just another example of how diet culture manipulates us and profits off of us by selling us the same narrative over and over again, which is buy this and you'll be good, buy this and you'll be bad. And it's simply not something that everybody can afford to do. And even if you can afford to do it, why? Why are you baking all your shit with coconut sugar? You know that it it's still sugar like I it, it's just a branding difference and some people will buy this stuff and not even really know why they're buying it or why it's quote healthier um, or maybe they read one article about it and they're they're not really educated on it I think I would implore you to really look into why you want to buy certain ingredients over other ingredients or substitutions or because in my experience, and definitely as I've learned more about eating intuitively, I've realized that these, quote, healthified foods that fitness bloggers or food bloggers will, will advertise to you as like, oh, eat this and it'll satisfy your sweet tooth. For me, it never really satisfies my sweet tooth, at least not as much as a real cupcake or a real brownie. I don't want black beans in my brownies. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not saying that you can't make it taste good, but it's not the same as a fucking brownie a la mode that you get at a 
truck stop or I don't know why I said a truck stop. <laughs> Is Brownie a la mode served at a truck stop? So please, somebody please tell me. Um, I, you know why? Because I was thinking of this place that I used to go to, which was very divey and it was near where I grew up and we would we would stop in it was like basically this wooden shack and they served wings like delicious chicken wings and then for dessert we would always get a brownie a la mode um and it was just so fucking good so that's why I'm saying truck stop but you know what I mean like or at a diner or something like going to a diner and getting a slice of pie and a scoop of ice cream be a good girl and send me a piece of pie it's so intensely satisfying in a way that Black bean brownies are not. And that's my opinion on that. I'm going to reiterate this for those who may have missed the message. And this is kind of changing topics, but it's really important. I feel like I haven't explicitly said this and I want to say this to you guys and I want it to really sink in. You cannot tell if someone is healthy or fit just by looking at them. It's really unfortunate that we think fitness has a certain look and I blame Instagram, I blame social media and the fact that people who work in the fitness industry or decide to be fitness Instagrammers can make all these health claims that really they're not so qualified to make um, and post a picture of themselves. And the implication is, oh, I look this way, so if you eat the way that I do, you're going to look this way, and that means you're fit. But really, somebody of any size can be fit, somebody of any size can be healthy, and you do not need to eat strictly a certain way to be healthy and to feel good. I just wanted to say that because this conversation today really got me in my feelings, I'm going to introduce my guest to you in a bit. Let's just go over principle number 10, gentle nutrition. Here's the official definition from intuitiveeating.org. Make food choices that honor your health and taste buds while making you feel good. Remember that you don't have to eat perfectly to be healthy. You will not suddenly get a nutrient deficiency or become unhealthy from one snack, one meal, or one day of eating. It's what you eat consistently over time that matters. Progress, not perfection, is what counts. So gentle nutrition, along with the last principle that we spoke about last week, which is uh, exercise. These are the two that come much later in the process for a good reason, and that is because It would be very easy for somebody who has disordered eating to misinterpret these, to think, oh, okay, so I can eat whatever I want, but at the same time, I have to keep in mind my overall health and um, and how my food is is contributing to that. That's not exactly how it works. So this is how I interpret gentle nutrition. I feel best personally, and again, this is after years of practicing intuitive eating, years of completely disregarding the nutrition factor, completely throwing out any idea I had of the pyramid and how much of each thing you're supposed to eat because I used to have severe anxiety, and I know I'm not the only one, about eating too much of certain food groups. And eventually, as my eating got more and more disordered, it became pretty much all food groups. If I ate 
cheese twice in one day or dairy in general, it did not sit right with me. I thought that was too much dairy. If I ate meat twice in one day, that did not sit right with me. If I ate sugar or something sweet, it didn't sit right with me. And these rules are completely arbitrary. They do not dictate your health. How often you eat cheese is not, and it's different for people who are lactose intolerant, but I think the majority of us can process most things. Also, I took a nutrition class in college and my teacher told me once that even if you develop a lactose intolerance as an adult, because some people do, and it's because you just don't drink as much milk as an adult as you do as a kid. When I was a kid, I used to pour myself a big old glass of milk and just drink it with nothing else. Now I don't really do that. I mean, I definitely have milk in my cereal. I have milk in my coffee. If I have a cookie, I need a glass of milk. I'm like a fucking mouse. If you give a mouse a cookie, hey But I'm not drinking whole glasses of milk. So I think that's probably the reason why people stop making the enzyme that breaks down the milk because they just their bodies figure that they don't need to. But my nutrition teacher told me that if you just had a glass of cold whole milk every day for a couple weeks, your body would start making the enzyme again and you would no longer be lactose intolerant. So that's one example of like, you know, if you feel a tiny bit of discomfort with a food, that doesn't necessarily mean you're allergic. I think we use the word allergy so willy nilly now and we're missing out on these delicious foods I mean, I cannot imagine never being able to eat ice cream again in my adulthood. That would just be so sad. I, And you know what? I probably eat enough of it that that will probably never happen. So too blessed to be stressed, I am. But for me personally, and I'm speaking about now, present day, I try to eat all the food groups. So I try to eat all a good mix of all the food groups. I don't restrict anything. I don't exclude anything from my diet. So I'm not rigidly, um, and also it's really not conscious, but I am not strictly monitoring what I'm eating and if I've gotten every food group in or any of that. It's more like an overall general, I mean, there are definitely days when I just have like a sandwich for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch, and a sandwich for dinner. Like, I sandwiches are just so fucking easy to make, especially in the queue. But if you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich three times a day, every day, you're not going to feel your best because you're going to be deficient in other things that you're going to want. So it's noticing those things, but it's not necessarily taking away things. Really, for me, it's about adding in things, adding in a little protein if my salad doesn't have any protein in it, or adding in a little spice, adding in some sauce if what I'm eating is bland, adding in more vegetables to things because I, I know that I, I like eating vegetables. Carrots! Yeah! In my tummy, party, party! Yeah! In my tummy, green beans! Yeah! In my tummy, party, party! Yeah! In my tummy, there's a party in my tummy! It's getting a sense overall that you are nourishing your body and giving yourself what you need consistently over time. And it is, again, a difficult concept when you're just starting out. So if you are just starting out in your intuitive eating process, I would urge you to disregard this principle. Just ignore it. 
and then circle back to it later on when you find that you don't really think about what you eat throughout the day, that you're comfortable allowing your body to make food choices for you and to honor your cravings. And then you can circle back to gentle nutrition. You can listen to this episode again. And yeah, I think you would be all the better for it by disregarding it. It comes last for a reason. Also, in the official definition, it, it does say you will not suddenly get a nutrient deficiency or become unhealthy for one snack, one meal, or one day of eating. That is so true. And you need to remember this. It's the same as back in your disordered days when you were desperately trying to lose weight. You wouldn't lose weight or become healthier, quote unquote, from one day of eating. It's really what you do over time that counts. And the same could be said for your intuitive eating practice. So just know if you ate not the most well-rounded diet on one day and you start getting in your head like, oh, that wasn't the best. Like I really didn't eat that many things. I you know, pizza all day or whatever. It's not that major. At the end of your life, when you look back on your life, you're not going to be devastated that you ate pizza all day one day. Rather, you're going to remember the experiences that you had, the good experiences. And on the other side of the coin, at the end of your life, if you miss out on certain experiences like stopping for fast food on a road trip with your friends, these little things do add up and you will have experienced less joy at the end of your life. I'm constantly reminded of this when I'm around um, my mom's side of the family. And I saw my mom's side of the family last week um, because my aunt lives in Jersey and has a pool. So we went over and we went swimming in her pool. And at one point, my mom and my aunt were having a little powwow on the porch. And I walk up on the porch. I'm drying myself off. And I hear my mom say to my aunt, oh, you're so skinny. And then my aunt was like, oh, what? No, I'm not. You're so skinny. And then my mom's like, what? No, I'm not. And this fucking conversation, I realized, I just realized in this moment, it never fucking ends unless you make a conscious decision to break free from the cycle. You're not going to get into your old age and suddenly feel better about yourself. Mind you, both of these women have beautiful families. They have grandchildren. They have made so much more out of their life than what they look like. And yet it still occupies such a large space in their brain. And personally, I don't want my life to be like that. I don't want to look back on my life and think, oh, I really missed out on a lot of things because I was worried about the way I looked and worried about what it would do to my body. Because really, my body is an incredible vessel. It does incredible things for me. It's healthy and strong. And I don't need to fit into what society thinks is a perfect body because that's not what's important in life. We get very distracted from what's actually important. And diet culture is also a way to keep women distracted. It has a long history of being explicitly targeted toward women in order to attract a man, in order to be beautiful. And that's not really what's important. There are so many more important things and so many more impressive, wonderful things about you that have nothing to do with the way you look. When I think about the people that I'm friends with or the people that I've dated, my boyfriend, for example, of course, I'm attracted to him. And of course, I think my friends are beautiful. 
but that's not the reason why I associate with them. It's not even on the top 10 reasons. So why would you expect yourself to live up to the same standard when nobody expects that from you who actually gives a shit about you? So put that in your pipe and smoke it. And I got to say, my conversation today is with a weight-neutral health coach, which is new territory for me, but it's something I want to do much more of. And I really want to have actual experts and people who work in the health field on the show to talk about anti-diet practices. If you listen to the episode with Tracy Carnazzo, episode seven, she referred me to this woman, and I'm so happy she did. My guest's name is Stephanie Roman, And like I said, she is a practicing weight-neutral health coach. We talk about what weight-neutral health coaching is and how you can benefit from it. We also talk about body positivity in mainstream media and how plus-size supermodels have started emerging and paving the way, but also why we still have a long way to go and why we need to keep pushing this movement and fight for more representation. And we also answer a listener question from my DMs, which was so valuable to have somebody who actually works in the field to be able to help answer this question. I loved this conversation, and I know that you're going to love it too. Welcome, Stephanie Roman. You guys, I'm so excited for my next guest. She is a weight neutral slash body positivity health coach. Her name's Stephanie Roman, and she actually has been health coaching past guest and friend of the show, Tracy Carnazzo, which is how I was referred to her. So excited to learn about her practice and how she got into it. Welcome, Stephanie Roman. Hey, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Have you um, done podcasting before? I did one. I was interviewed on a podcast once before, so this would be my second time. Very nice. So you're practically a veteran. (laughs) Practically. Um, first, I would love to know what is weight neutral health coaching for people who have never heard of that before people who think of health coaching as like, oh, here's your calorie limit per day. And here's your fitness regimen. Like, how do you approach health coaching from a weight neutral perspective? Yeah, so it's basically, you know, in simplified terms, it's just putting weight on the shelf, and any considerations about weight on the shelf. So um, when we're talking about health, when we're talking about how someone's feeling in their body, um, maybe their approach or relationship with food or their uh, relationship with movement, it's it has nothing to do with their size. Um, it has nothing to do with calories. It has nothing to do with the number on the scale. Um, it's all about connecting to who you are and to what your body signals are and what you intuitively know about yourself. Maybe you're just feeling a little disconnected from. So I use a lot of the principles of intuitive eating. Um, which I know you talk a lot about and also love intuitive eating. It's the best. It's the best. You can't beat it. And um, I wish everybody would read that book if they haven't yet. And also health at every size is another great book and another great um, paradigm to use when trying to pursue health and just, um, yeah, just letting weight not be part of the conversation. That's what it means to be weight neutral. And how, what type of clients do you see? Do you typically see people who are chronic dieters? Do you see people all over the map? I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So I do see mostly chronic dieters. The majority of my clients are non-straight size clients. So um, they're plus size, they're fat, however they wish to identify themselves. Um, And are typically people that are 
been dieting for, you know, one, two, three, four decades and have tried everything in the book, as they say, and are frustrated. Um, they're, they're, and they're just really fed up. They're fed up with feeling uncomfortable in their bodies. They're fed up with dieting and managing their food. They're fed up with having that whole food and body just take up so much space in their brain. And, and are just like, I'm done with this. Like, how can I feel confident? How can I feel comfortable? How can I embrace the body that I have now? And they might have some, you know, exposure already to intuitive eating, or they might have some exposure to um, body positivity, or might follow other, um, you know, fat people on Instagram, who they find to be inspirational, but they just haven't been able to capture that for themselves. And so it's like, yeah, I have some knowledge. Yeah, I think this is amazing. I agree with the process, you know, the thought process of body positivity, but what does that mean for me? And how do I do that on a day-to-day basis? That's usually where they're getting hung up. And then that's where I can come in. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of people do have that experience of like when they see people on social media or even in their everyday lives who have a healthy relationship with food or their bodies, they think, oh my God, that's so amazing. And they have positive feelings toward that, but I could never do that, but I would never feel comfortable with myself. So how do you get somebody to feel comfortable doing that when it's outside of the norm of what they have always thought of as healthy and fit? Yeah. I mean, some of it is, you know, it's, I can't, I mean, I, first of all, I can't get anybody to do anything. Right. So it really is about them allowing me to be a guide and to show them the tools that I've used on myself, that I've used with other clients that I've seen what works, but they have to do it, you know? And And some of this is, some of it is digging into the past and thinking about like, okay, when did I first get these messages about food and body? Where are these voices in my head? Where are they coming from? Are they mine? Are they my mom's? Are they my boyfriend's? Are they my girlfriend's? Like, where are these beliefs coming from? Do I want to own them? And it's, and, but a lot of it is just practice and kind of like pushing yourself and saying, you know, this is hard and this is uncomfortable. And to think that my body is okay makes me really uncomfortable, but I'm going to try and I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and, and just really rewiring and reframing and reprogramming all of those belief systems that have been, been held in the brain for so long. And you mentioned, um, drawing from your own experience a little bit. I would love to know what was your experience growing up and did you struggle at all with body image? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, my first remembrance of like being aware of my body or thinking my body was not okay. I probably was like 11 years old, you know? that might sound young to some, but I'm actually kind of on the older end. Most people have started that started having those feelings much younger. So I'm fortunate in that degree. And, you know, it really was just, I can't say how much of it was reflected, you know, from media at that time, but I, you know, I grew up, you know, my mom was a, a chronic dieter and I went with her to Weight Watchers, you know, to her Weight Watchers meetings since I was a kid. And, you know, she'd have people over and they do these like challenges to lose weight and who could lose the most, you know, and all that. So that was just something that I observed. And I was also very grateful that my mom never like projected that onto me. She never shamed me for my body. Or again, a lot of most girls and women have experienced like more direct shame. I didn't have that, but it was more just the modeling of seeing like, oh, okay, my mom doesn't want to take pictures. Or my mom talks about this about herself or you know, having this kind of shape or this kind of body size is unacceptable. So I need to work on that and I need to fix that. Um, and yeah, so I, mean, I think my birthday's in the summertime. So I was always like, oh, by the time I'm 13, I'm going to look like this. And by the time I'm 14, you know, it was always like that was the goal. <laughs> 
and and I grew up in Florida too, so it was also like, okay, yeah, now we got to like pull out our bathing suits, whatever. And I just lived like that for a very, very, very long time. And it was, you know, I don't very typical in the sense that I tried a bunch of different diets, I did a bunch of different things, I was obsessed with consuming information. It was just like reading and blogs and books and, you know, when social media came to be a thing, doing that and following all these Fitspo accounts and just like looking for that like golden ticket. Like what's the thing that's gonna finally make me have, you know, control, quote unquote control over my body and food. Um, and I did that and for like 25 years, for a little bit more than 25 years before I kind of had a wake up call around that. Wow. And were you, were you involved in nutrition before? Were you trying to be a a dietitian or a health coach or anything like that? I was not. No, I worked in the corporate world and, um, I wasn't, and it wasn't until I was, you know, I was in my mid thirties at the time. And I had, you know, kind of gone to that place I spoke about earlier of just being super fed up and being like, oh my God, am I going to live like this for the rest of my life? Like there's got to be a better way. And I went to see a health coach. And quite honestly, I went to the health coach to, to figure out a way to lose weight. I mean, that was my goal going in. And, you know, I ended up being fortunate enough to come across someone who taught me about intuitive eating and health at every size. And that body diversity is a real thing. And we're not all supposed to look the same. And um, and what diet culture is. I mean, these were concepts I had never even heard of before. I mean, it was brand new to me. Um, and it, it changed my life. I mean, it was a process and it wasn't immediate because it's like, it's a counterculture thing to have to just like shift how you think and believe about all that. So it took time. But once I did, I mean, shortly thereafter, I got laid off from my job. And I was just like, yeah, I want to do this. Like, I'm passionate about this. I like this. I want to do what this coach did for me. And, and that's, when I started pursuing this as a career. Wow. And you clearly had an entrepreneurial spirit to change careers like that. That's amazing. Yeah, I guess so. You know, it was like, I don't think I knew what I was getting into. That was part of it too. Just kind of the naivety of like, yeah. oh, I'm just going to start a business. This is going to be what I do now. And I'm going to get my certification and the clients are just going to roll in and like, you know, not realizing like all that was involved in it. So, uh, you know, two and a half years later, I definitely have a more <laughs> different perspective. But, but, it, you know, it's, and it is difficult. I mean, anyone who's an entrepreneur or solopreneur knows that, but it's, it's worth it. And I wouldn't give it up for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine it's very rewarding to know that you're putting all this work into building your business, but you're also helping people along the way. Yeah. Um, I wonder in, so you've been practicing for two and a half years. Yeah. Over that time, have you noticed people any change as far as how knowledgeable people are coming in about health at every size or anti-diet nutrition or any of that? Because I am Mm -hmm. noticing that it's having an incline in the amount that people know about it now. Yeah. I think, I think that people that find me typically already have some knowledge. So I might be a little bit skewed in terms of like the people that I'm talking to and how much knowledge they have. Um, But yeah, I think, I think they do have more knowledge, but I think that there's still a disconnect there. You know, I think people are perhaps like more aware of what diet culture is, but then don't necessarily see like paleo and keto and whole 30 as part of diet culture. You know, I think there's still like lifestyle changes, quote unquote. Right, right. And like, I think they still get caught up on the health aspect, like 
yeah, it's okay to be any size unless you're unhealthy. And then that's not okay. And I can tell if you're unhealthy by looking at you, you know, and that's not to criticize anyone. I think we've, we've all been there at some point, but I just think that there is still a disconnect. Um, people have even read the intuitive eating book. Like I think that there's still, yeah, there's still room there. Um, even just using, you know, terms like overweight or terms like obese and things like that, that I think are still very much part of the conversation, even amongst the quote unquote body positivity, you know, people um, and not realizing like really what those words mean and, and that we need to eradicate them. So, yeah, I think that there's and even for myself personally, like, oh, my goodness, I feel like I'm still learning and I'm still learning the perspectives of other people and like what they've dealt with and like what to be sensitive to. So there's, yeah, it's very multifaceted. So I think there's still a lot of room for all of us to learn and grow. Yeah. I've even started learning so much more since I started doing this podcast. And the word overweight for me is something that I really struggle with because when I was little, I was classified as overweight. That's just what you call it. So I sometimes don't know what to tell people. Do I say I was overweight when I was a child or do I say I was a fat child or what do I say? Because all of these things are so arbitrary and also like children vary in in sizes and then they fluctuate and change as they grow. Like I don't even know if it's okay to like comment on a child's body in that way. So that's something that I definitely struggle with. Yeah. And I think, I I think what you said about not commenting on other people's bodies is accurate because everyone's going to identify in a certain way. Um, You know, I mean, I have friends who are of a certain size and they, they attach themselves to the phrasing super fat. They don't want to just be called fat. They, you know, they're, they're not on the lower end, quote unquote, of the fat spectrum. And they want that to be addressed and realized and for their experience to be recognized. And then there are others who still find the word fat super offensive because it's only ever been used to them in a negative, derogatory, insulting kind of way. And I think we have to be sensitive to that too. I mean, I I use the word fat as a descriptive word. I don't use it as a negative word, but I realize that a lot of people aren't there yet and we have to kind of go with whatever they feel comfortable with. You know, and as far as overweight goes, you know, Again, it's like, it's not to shame anybody who uses the word if you still use it. Why why I don't use it, why I don't think it's helpful is because it implies that there is a set weight that we should all be at. And if we're over that, then we're overweight instead of allowing for the fact that we're all dynamic individuals with different DNA structures and socioeconomic conditions and all of the things that that contribute to weight. And so who's to say if I'm overweight or you're overweight or over what, over what weight, over whose determination of what weight should be, right? You know, so I think if you wanted to refer to yourself in the past, you could always say, well, I was living in a larger body then, or I was considered a fat Mm -hmm. child, or my doctor told me that I was fat or whatever, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's there's a bunch of different ways to use it. And again, it's not, you know, it's not life and death if you say overweight. I just think it's helpful if we start to move away from those words. Yeah, no, totally. And I think terminology is really important. And I think above anything else, I've learned that like you should take cues from other people Mm. and whatever other people are comfortable with. Those are the people who are ultimately in charge of their own bodies and in charge of like how other people should be referring to their bodies. A hundred percent. So I'm very curious, how do you go about like if I were to sign up for a session? 
Mm-hmm. What would be the first thing that we would do? Would you ask me about my history and go from there? I'm wondering, like, how do you address people's needs and how do you how do you like go about different people in different ways? Because I know that like yeah. everybody's different and everybody has a different amount of knowledge. Definitely. Um, so that's one of the first. Like, when someone signs up for an introductory session with me, I'll send them a questionnaire with just a few brief questions usually. And it's, it is things like, what is your experience with intuitive eating and health at every size? What brought you to want to schedule this session? What other things have you tried to help yourself with your body image? You know, what is your history with food and, and body? And they can be as detailed or as not detailed as they want in that, but that just helps me going into that first conversation. And then that first conversation we have is just exploring those things a little bit more. I mean, ultimately my goal in that conversation is to find out, is this, someone that I feel like I fit well with and they fit well with me. I don't want to ever take anyone's money that I'm not, that I don't feel like I can actually help. And if someone is like, I am not ready to give up dieting and I'm going to keep dieting and like, that's my thing. I will probably tell them you have every right to do that. And I don't think I'm the person for you right now. I think what I'm going to try to work with you with is going to be very directly uh, opposing of what you're trying to do with food and body right now. And it's just not going to fit, you know? So, and there might be other circumstances, someone who has a, you know, an active eating disorder or things that I just don't feel qualified um, or that I would be doing them a disservice to handle. Like I, I I'm pretty upfront and open about that. And then if they do, if we do decide to work together, then yeah, it's about narrowing down, like where, where are the primary issues what are the primary issues? Are is it with food? Are they still restricting a ton? Do are they trying to intuitively eat? What is their self-talk like about their body? Because some people it's more body, some people it's more food. It's always a combination of the two, but you know, it's usually leans in one direction or the other. And then slowly trying to dismantle those things and like I said, teach new ways of thinking and, and reframing and like experiment and be curious with that stuff and it's very personalized so there's no like set direction for every every person that I work with um but yeah it's just really getting to know them and trying to get down to the nitty-gritty of where we can make some shifts this is something that I've been thinking about and I'm curious to hear from somebody who works in the field yeah do people ever come to you Saying like, I feel bad about myself when I go on Instagram and I see that like everybody has a quote, better body than I do and things like that. And what do you, if they do, what, what do you tell them to do about that? Uh, Yeah, that happens a lot. And that's probably the one of the first things I would address with anyone, even if they don't bring it up to me is what is your social media feed looking like these days? How do you feel when you're going through your feed? Um, Yeah. You need to follow people that look like you. You need to follow people that look like you and are bigger than you and are doing the things in your life that you want to be doing, whether it's wearing the clothes you want to wear or doing the career you want to have or, you know, dating or getting married or whatever it is that you're holding yourself back from, you know, representation and visualization of, of people that are doing these things are so important and, and they're there. You know, I think sometimes when we're really caught up in diet culture, we feel like, oh, there's no fat people out there doing the things that I want to do. And that's not true. Um, you know, they're, they're out there, you know, they're climbing Kilimanjaro and they're running marathons and they're, you know, dating and getting married and having, you know, killer careers. They're doing all those things. So 
it's about finding people that are doing the things that you want to do. And I help with that. I absolutely have like an arsenal of people that I will recommend and finding people that look like you. I mean, maybe not everyone would agree with me on that, but I just feel like that's important. You know, even amongst fat bodies, not all fat bodies are the same. And if you don't happen to have the Ashley Graham hourglass fat body, then you need to find somebody else that looks like you. And 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 still see that person as be in 3D and be like, okay, wow, they're they're worthy and valuable, and I am too. So, yeah, that representation is super important. Yeah, it that that's so true that you would bring up Ashley Graham because like she is a plus size model who is very very famous, mm-hmm. and a lot of people will sometimes use her as an example or use Tess Holiday as an example, or yeah. you know, there's like a handful of others. And of course, there there are fat women in Hollywood that have wonderful careers, but you know it's it's very hard to not notice the fact that like all of these fat women, all these plus size women, who seem to have careers and seem to be like these beacons of hope that people um, that people refer to all the time as like, oh well, she's doing it, like she can make it. Look, we have representation. Right. These are all women who ha- still have like a pretty particular body type. They all have huge jugs. Yeah, and this is something that I noticed because I happen to not have huge jugs, and <laughs> they all have like these pretty, uh, like delicate faces. Mm-hmm. You don't see like heavier women being represented who have like too close together eyes and fucked up teeth. You know what I mean? So I think like it can be so hard. It can be so hard when, when people think like, okay, I'm represented, but at the same time, I'm not represented. Like I still don't look as perfect as these people. Absolutely. You know, it's like, you know, Ashley Graham. And again, you know, like she, no, no hate towards her. She really like, you know, broke open the fashion industry in a lot of ways. And she was one of the larger, one of the first larger bodies that we ever saw go down the runway, right? So there's something to be said for that. And at the same time, she's still in the socially acceptable body. You know, she has a big bust. She has a big booty. She's got a flat stomach for the most part. You know what I mean? Smaller waist, like she still meets a lot of the criteria of like the socialized beauty ideal. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really that big of a stretch to say, Oh yeah, I think Ashley Graham looks great. Right. And, and, and maybe we have to start there. Maybe if we're not used to observing or praising or accepting fat bodies, maybe we need to start with Ashley Graham and that's totally fine. But let's, let's start, let's not end there. Let's keep opening up our eyes to the fact that there are other bodies that exist that are worthwhile and beautiful and, um, and that deserve to be seen and recognized and praised. And, and again, like you said, you know, having big boobs ends up being like the, the calling card of a fat person. Well, guess what? We don't all have big boobs. Like we just don't. And, you know, that needs not be like yeah. our, our our most common image of it's like using the word curvy too, I think is sometimes a little problematic because sometimes not all fat people are curvy, you know? Some of us are very straight up and down. And it's you know, it's like realizing again, like if we start with Ashley Graham, that's totally fine, but realizing that there's a whole other world of body shapes and sizes out there that deserve to be normalized just as much as Ashley Graham or anyone that looks like her does. Absolutely. I love that. I'm also wondering, do you, this sounds like the type of thing, and by this, I mean the health coaching. Yeah. Um, sounds like a, a 
thing that would be a good pair for therapy. Mm-hmm. Like it would be a good accoutrement to therapy. Yeah. Do you suggest to people that they also go to therapy? Absolutely. Um, especially if they have other issues that are going on that uh, we're not going to be able to address in the same way that a therapist or psychiatrist would, whether that's, you know, anxiety or depression or OCD or some other you know, maybe body dysmorphia, some other thing that might be, you know, a a comorbidity with their body image issues. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's, it's definitely, uh, most of my clients are in therapy, I want to (laughs) say, usually, or, or they were, or they're very familiar with therapy, because that also, I think, opens them up to the coach, the idea of coaching and like what I, what coaching is and being able to talk about their things. Um, but yeah, I definitely think like that they, they are very complementary coaching and therapy. They serve different roles, but definitely complementary. Yeah, totally. And it seems like if somebody is aware enough to seek out, just like you said, if somebody's aware enough to seek out a, a weight neutral health coach, then they probably would have been to therapy at some point. Yeah. But you would be surprised because some people, you know, write me for advice and clearly gone to therapy. So. <laughs> Um, yeah. And actually, on that note, I got a I got a DM, and I was like, "Oh, this is amazing! I'm gonna have an expert on. <laughs> I can ask her this question because I don't really know the answer to this question. I know the answer for me, but I know it doesn't apply to ev- everybody." Okay. How do you think alcohol ties into intuitive eating, or do you think it's safe to treat alcohol the same way that you would treat food in an intuitive eating practice? Well, I'll give the disclaimer up front that obviously I'm not, you know, trained in treating any sort of, you know, addictions or alcoholism or um, anything like that. No, totally. But like just for a just for a normal person who's like a social drinker, let's say, because this is like somebody asked me about it and I was like, well, in my experience, like I just treat it the same way that I would treat food, but I don't have I don't have like much of a tendency toward alcohol. So I'm probably not the right person to ask. So like in terms of just so I can get some clarification. So in terms of like how much alcohol to drink, like being able to, to look at that intuitively. Yeah. Like, let's say I wanted to have a glass of wine, like is, Mm -hmm. is having a glass of wine or like multiple glasses of wine whenever I want, is that a safe thing to do? Like, should I, should it be treated the same way as food? My gut reaction is to say no, or actually no. My gut reaction is to say perhaps, (laughs) because I think it depends, right? It depends on is alcohol, do you have a tendency to over drink? And is that something you're trying to manage right now? Um, Because alcohol and food are not the same. And like, I think that does get caught up. Like people will talk about food addiction in the same way that they'll talk about alcoholism or drug addiction. And it's not. Um, it, it, and there's a lot of controversial (laughs) data that will say that it is, but, um, it really isn't because food is something that we need, right? Food is a requirement. It's like, you can't OD on oxygen. You really can't OD on food. So I think it would be, it would be really challenging to approach alcohol or any potentially addictive substance in the same way that you would, um, food. Because again, food is a requirement necessity for life and our relationship with food is essential to our well-being and our health. Whereas our relationship with alcohol, like if we didn't ever have alcohol again, we'd survive and be okay, right? And Mm -hmm. if we overdo alcohol, we can very much not be okay. So we have to, I think we have to treat that a little bit more delicately 
Um, and again, it's it's not my my area, but I would say that anyone who feels like they have a predisposition to drinking beyond the point that they personally feel comfortable, like it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. But if you just find yourself drinking past the point of where you feel comfortable, waking up the next day and going, oh, I really wish I hadn't drank that much, then yeah, maybe you need to talk to somebody about it and get some get some help around mm-hmm. that. I don't think it's it's different from you know, if someone tells me, you know, they have a problem with fig Newtons and they eat tons of fig Newtons, I'm probably going to tell them to just buy a bunch of fig Newtons and keep them in the house because they need to, <laughs> yeah, they need to normalize that. Right. Which with alcohol, you wouldn't necessarily have the same advice. Yeah. I think, and I think it, it's like very complicated. I do hear a lot of people compare quote food addiction. I don't believe in food addiction, but to alcohol addiction and Another reason why they're so different, uh, because first of all, food, you need to live, Mm -hmm. just like you said. But the other difference is that when you have some kind of addiction to food, what you're really addicted to is the behavior around food. You're not actually addicted to the substance, whereas with alcohol, you you can get addicted to the substance and you can get addicted to the way it makes you feel. So the two should be treated differently, but I think they get confused a lot because for example, when I had an eating disorder, I did not drink at all Mm -hmm. because I was nervous about the calories that were in Mm -hmm. the alcohol. And Mm -hmm. I was nervous that alcohol would make me fat. You know what I mean? Right. So for me, like having a beer or having a glass of wine, like it's kind of an act of rebellion for me sometimes. Like I said, I'm not a huge drinker, but even to be able to have that and to be able to indulge in that and not be like thinking like, oh, okay, well, like that's just like wheat in my intestines or whatever nonsense I used to think right, right. is empowering for me and is something that ha- has helped me improve my mental health around it. Definitely. And like, that's a great example of how much nuance there is in a, in a topic like this, because, you know, if someone is recovering from eating disorder, you know, eating the quote unquote or drinking the quote unquote scary foods is part of recovery and being able to, you know, experiment with those things that you wouldn't allow yourself before is an essential part of recovery. So yeah, a beer, a glass of wine might be a part of that. If that was the way you were looking at it was in a diet mentality sort of way, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, round of shots on me. It's for my recovery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Well, we do need to wrap up, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like people to take away from this? I think, you know, just be open to it. I think, you know, if you're already here listening to this podcast, you probably are open to it, but, you know, continue to educate yourself and, you know, I, it's, it, this is a, a, a fraught topic where people have a lot of knee-jerk reactions and don't want to, you know, oh, that doesn't sound right. That just, it's not what I've been taught. Just be open to it. Talk to your people about it, your friends, your family, get their thoughts, spread the word. It's important. Yeah. Spread the fucking word. I always say <laughs> it. Um, where can people find you, follow you? Where can people reach out for a session if they're interested? Yeah. The best way, the best place to follow me is Instagram. Um, so uh, my handle there is S Roman coaching. And right in my LinkedIn bio, you can schedule a session um, and find out more information about what I do, et cetera. Great. Stephanie's handle will be in the show notes as well. So you can just copy and paste. She's a great follow. And um, yeah, I, I think that hopefully cleared up a lot of questions that people had. Sometimes I get DMs and I'm just like, 
I am not qualified to answer these <laughs> questions. I can only tell you my experience. Yeah. But so that's why I love to have like educated voices on the podcast. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, guys, I hope you liked that conversation with Stephanie Roman. You can find her at S Roman Coaching on Instagram. Hit her up if you want a session. It's all remote. Um, so no matter where you live, you can have a session with Stephanie and see if uh, weight neutral health coaching is for you, which spoiler alert, it's for everybody because it's weight neutral, which means that you can achieve health and self-esteem and have a wonderful life uh, no matter what size you are. And that is pretty much it. You can join the conversation by sliding into my DMs. I am Lubination on Instagram. Or you can join the private Facebook group by searching for RIP Dieters on the Facebook search bar and then requesting to be a member. And if you request to be a member, I'm letting you in. There's no screening process. But I will say if you say anything hateful or if you violate the safe space in any way, I will remove you. So just behave yourselves, okay? I hope you all have a fabulous week. I hope you eat a delicious chicken sandwich or something else that you enjoy. Get a tub of ice cream. Cool down. There's a fucking heat wave going on. So just enjoy yourselves. Enjoy the summer. Enjoy all the delicious foods and experiences this summer has to offer. Peace out. Peace out.